Welcome to episode 127 of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew. When doing research on the Midwest in the 1920s, you cannot scroll through the newspaper archives without reading about Klan activity. The KKK was infiltrating all kinds of social clubs, associations, political groups, and of course, police departments. Recently, I've been researching the fall of 1923, and while the brunt of the conflict between the Klan and everybody else was coming to a head in Oklahoma, something interesting was happening in Indiana, too. This is a story about the time everyone thought the KKK was going to buy Valparaiso University. I really had no intention of doing a story about northern Indiana. It's pretty far from us. But once I saw something in the paper about it and I started reading, I just couldn't stop. I ended up somewhere I did not mean to go, which is exactly what happened when they redid Spaghetti Junction in downtown Louisville, and then everybody was just accidentally driving to Indiana all the time. It happened to everybody. If you say it didn't happen to you, you're lying. Um... Louisville people will know what I'm talking about. The other thing is that I know on the last episode, I just said that I don't want to interject my personal opinions into these episodes. However, there are exceptions on certain topics when I just can't help myself. And the KKK is one of those topics. I also want to give credit at the top of this episode to Lance Trusty, a history professor at Purdue University who wrote a great chapter on this topic in his book, which I will link to in the show notes. And then I did also use several newspaper archives to supplement his writing. The purpose of this chapter in Trusty's book is actually to disprove the notion that the Klan almost bought Valparaiso, and that the Klan itself wasn't as rich and powerful in Indiana during that time as the Klan maybe wanted people to think the somewhat apocryphal story about how they almost purchased the university sheds light on the actual state of the organization. Quote, A confused tale of how the Klan bought Valpo still circulates in northern Indiana. A close look at that unconsummated purchase provides valuable insights into the Klan's leadership and organizational effectiveness. Most Klan records have disappeared, but newspapers, Klan journals, the excellent archives of Valparaiso University, and shards from Stevenson's trial and appeals in the Archives Division of the Indiana Commission on Public Records, housed in the Indiana State Library, permit a surprisingly close look at a vain foray into the world of higher education by an organization sadly in need of some. The city of Valparaiso, Indiana, was part of a land purchase by the U.S. government in 1832. It was originally named Portersville, but was changed to Valparaiso in 1837 after the town in Chile. The city today is about 15.5 square miles in the northwest corner of Indiana, 50 miles southeast of Chicago. In the 2010 census, there were 31,730 residents, According to a 2022 census estimate, 
The population is 86.3% white and just over 4% black. But according to Wikipedia, quote, from the 1890s until 1969, there were no African-American residents in Valparaiso. This has been attributed to Valparaiso being a sundown town. The first African-American family to move to Valparaiso faced intimidation and eventually left the city when a visiting relative was murdered. Valparaiso, the school, was founded by Methodists in 1859 as an institute pioneering co-education, meaning one of the first where boys and girls would be taught together, hence the very literal name, Valparaiso Male and Female College. In 1871, it closed because of the Civil War, then reopened as the Northern Indiana Normal School and Business Institute two years later. In 1906, it was rechartered as Valparaiso University, and by 1915, it was one of the nation's largest private universities and, quote, occupied a useful niche between the Midwest traditional values, elitist private colleges, and the distant, degree-oriented state universities. In its early days, 40% of students went on to become teachers, but most students weren't exactly there for a degree, but to learn job skills. The founders, Henry Baker Brown and Oliver Kinsey, wanted to offer everything they could to everyone they could. Open admissions, co-education, preparatory, remedial, work-study programs, education for the handicapped, and practical industrial technical training. A bit about the founder and his partner. Henry Baker Brown was born in Mount Vernon, Ohio in 1847. He started teaching when he was 15 years old to earn money for a higher education. Education was always his passion. He moved to Indiana in 1878, got married, and had four children, two sons and two daughters. You'll meet one of his sons in a little while. One thing I do want to mention about Brown, and I only saw this in one place. It was an article from the Bryan Press in Bryan, Ohio in 1918. And this article mentions that when he started what would become Valparaiso, he did all the work. I mean, all of it. He acted as janitor until they could get the school established enough to hire one. I liked that detail, and I found a subsequent article from 1921 that wrote he founded the school, quote, to educate men and women who might not have the advantage of a prompt reply from Dear Papa to please send 50. By all appearances, he was just a hardworking guy that believed education should be accessible to not just the super wealthy. Oliver Kinsey was invited by Brown to help him run the school in 1881. Kinsey was a prominent figure in the community. He was on the city council, the library board, things like that. And I'll be sure to post a picture of Mr. Kinsey. I mean, I'll post a picture of both of them, but Oliver Kinsey had truly exceptional hair and the facial hair to match, just a very stylish Hoosier. Valparaiso was a proprietary school. Kinsey and Brown were the sole owners. They operated without trustees, without endowments. They had no Greek life. They had no dances. It was a place of study and nothing else. They really didn't do much of anything to generate income for the school. So the educational element of it was going great, but it wasn't a great business model. And so if you think about it, it's interesting that they made it work as well as it did for as long as it did. 
They offered more than just college-level classes. I read somewhere that for a time they had everything from kindergarten all the way up to high school and then the upper-level classes as well. They had a school of medicine and dentistry in Chicago. There was a music school, a law school, pharmacy school, and all of it was described as having a democratic approach. Quote, Rich men's sons attended quite often, but their wealth doesn't bring them any preferment. The good fraternity and the snoopy snob sorority has never filled the empty heads of gullible undergraduates with false and silly ideas of superiority, and petty politics doesn't occupy the better part of the school year. Valparaiso is truly American in its ideal and its achievement. Somehow, for a long time, they managed to keep their expenses quite low. They offered three meals a day with locally produced foods for 20 cents in 1913, and tuition plus room and board for that year, 1913, was a whopping $23. Unfortunately, while this was great for the incoming students, the staff was not quite as pleased by how things were managed. Namely, operation costs were rising, they needed better teaching environments, they needed more space, nicer buildings, and they wanted a standardized curriculum. They were denied accreditation by the North Central Association of Colleges and Universities. This was a problem for a lot of reasons, one of them being your credits from Valpo would not transfer to another school if you did. Another being that people in the community started questioning whether Valpo was a, quote, real university. In 1919, there was a state requirement that all private institutions maintain a $500,000 endowment, which seemed impossible. Quote, an otherwise laudable rise in public day and night school attendance eroded Valparaiso's once profitable preparatory department, and the normal program increasingly competed with growing, fully accredited, and even more economical state colleges and universities. The onset of World War I contributed to the changing landscape of the university in the 19-teens. While they welcomed a few thousand soldiers from a federally funded program, they also experienced a mass exodus of immigrants withdrawing from the university to go home to Europe. And then, of course, another percentage of young men left school to fight on behalf of the United States. And then on top of that, many female students ended up leaving to go to work while the men were away. But the really big problem was the death of their founder, Henry Baker Brown, in 1917. It wasn't just that he died. Um, he had been in bad health for some time. And he always had plans to create a board of trustees to oversee the continuation of the university after his death um, and to keep things going in the direction that he had taken the school. But he never got around to doing that. So when he died... There was no board of trustees, and there really was no plan. What they had instead was what Ryder Lance Trustee called the school's first administrative crisis. So for two years, his partner, Oliver Kinsey, 
took over as acting president, but his wife was sick. So after two years, he called it quits to go take care of his wife. Around the same time, there were two major fires in the dorm rooms. So the list of setbacks was starting to pile up. The role of president next fell to Brown's son, Henry Kinsey Brown, who I'm going to call Junior most of the time. Uh, and yes, Henry Baker Brown named his son after his business partner, Oliver Kinsey. So Brown Jr. acted as bursar for two years while Kinsey was president. And then when Kinsey left, Henry Brown Jr. took over. And he had big dreams and very different from what his father wanted the school to be. And he wanted to, quote, raise large sums of money, build an endowment, and reconstruct the entire university, decrepit campus, outmoded programs, and all. And, of course, his dad wouldn't have argued with any of that. It's the way he did it uh, that was very different than his father's vision. And the older faculty members at the university, it seems like they were kind of rolling their eyes at him. But then he did go and implement some major changes, and he did modernize the university, appealing to, quote, the better educated, more sophisticated young men and women who were later to find their prophet and apologist in Mr. F. Scott Fitzgerald. So Valpo's days as a technical remedial school were over. He leveled up the curriculum, spruced up the classrooms, and Saturday night debates were replaced with dances where the newly formed fraternities and sororities could mingle. The university was veering far off course from what Brown Jr.'s father had intended. They also created sports teams and filled the seats with fans. Varsity football started in 1920, and they were not good at all, but they played a full season against Ivy League teams on a national stage, and that was good for visibility. But you have to be careful with your balance sheet when you're making all these changes. And Brown was not careful. Implementing all these new features meant everything was going to be more expensive for the student. And the original demographic that Valpo appealed to could no longer afford to go there. And the hopes were that his improvements would attract droves of these more upper class prospects. But that's not really what happened. His plan failed. Um, faculty stopped getting paid. The buildings that he renovated weren't maintained. Students left. And by July of 1920, Brown Jr. could see the writing on the walls, and he finally appointed a board of trustees coinciding with his resignation as president. This new board was made up of men from nearby Chicago, men described as civic-minded. They understood that Valparaiso, the town, needed Valparaiso, the school. By 1923, the board had grown to 21 members, including men from New York and Pennsylvania, and they had a core group they called their executive board, made up of nine men who made the most important decisions. So in that regard, they were actually doing a great job of getting organized, but an ongoing problem they faced was an extremely high turnover rate for presidents. And the, the man they chose to lead, 
right after Brown Jr.'s departure was a bad choice. His name was Daniel Hogden, quote, an ill-tempered autocrat with a genuine bachelor's degree from Bates College buried under a collection of phony diplomas. Hogden was seriously, severely disliked by his peers and students. He continued in the direction that Brown Jr. had started, and it just was not working. So before leaving, he described Valpo as, quote, a hotbed of Bolshevism, communism, and other cults. Thanks to those comments, several alumni closed their pocketbooks to the university, disconnecting the school with a huge portion of their donors. Because it was the Red Scare, and nobody wanted to support any institution said to be spreading communism, right? So that, that was a really hurtful thing that he said. So they had to get rid of that guy. They had two temporary presidents from 1921 to 22, John Ressler and Milo Bowman. Enrollment continued to decline. The federal program that had brought the, the uh, veterans to the university for a vocational program ended in 1922, and they still had not received accreditation from the state. There was maybe one silver lining, and that was in sports. In 1923, William Shadowen, former assistant coach of Center College's Prey and Colonels football team, led Valpo through a 28-game basketball season, of which they won 24 games, 22 of them consecutively, without any substitutes, earning them the name the Victory Five. I love stories like that, and also sometime I want to do like a whole episode on kind of obscure moments in Kentucky sports history, like the 1922 Center College football team. That season is crazy. It's awesome, and I want to talk about it, uh, but not today. So 1923, uh, same year as the Victory Five, Horace Evans was introduced as new president of Valparaiso. He had been a student, then a professor at Valpo, and he was also a physician and businessman. And at the time, they were still kind of trying to hide it, but the general public knew that Valpo needed financial help. They were not doing well. At the time, the Brown family retained ownership of the campus as security for a total debt of around $375,000, a third of which had been borrowed during Brown Jr.'s time as president. It's a mess. It's truly a mess. So here's what happened. Quote, the school's formal creditor was the Brown family-owned Valparaiso Realty Company, which had raised the money loaned to the university by selling 125,000 shares of 10-year preferred stock to J.F. Wilf & Company, an Indianapolis investment bank. The campus was pledged as collateral. The board of trustees had agreed to redeem the stock and accrued interest by 1930, and if all went well by then, the board would own the university outright, but all was not going well right? And they were barely on track to obtain ownership of a sinking vessel. They were running out of money, faculty was leaving, students were leaving, and they were overdue on a scheduled payment to Valparaiso Realty. And desperate times call for desperate measures. One of the groups showing some interest in Valparaiso was the realm of Indiana of the invisible empire of the Ku Klux Klan. 
so this Indiana realm of the KKK was about to host a rally in Valparaiso, and they called the local clavern ahead of time to get more information about the town before they got there. Um, clavern, that's a thing that the KKK did. They would put KL in front of words, real-life examples being conversation, clavalier, and yes, clavern, which if you couldn't guess, meant tavern where the clan hung out. It would be like a kind of a headquarters. So this out-of-town group called this local clavern, and the clansmen who responded happened to be two things. One, chairman of the clavern's publicity committee, and two, a student at Valparaiso University. And this young man saw an opportunity to unite two of his favorite institutions. So he said, of course, when you guys are in town, I would love to show you around my campus. And just so you guys know, it's in major financial trouble. So you could acquire it for pennies on the dollar and we could use it to spread our doctrine. It was reported that while they were in town, these Klansmen spent a considerable amount of time checking out the university and rumors started spreading that a deal was in the works. Um, this was a big rally, by the way. The Associated Press claimed that thousands of Klansmen had arrived from out of town by noon on May 19th. 1,500 traveled by train from Chicago, and Klansmen filled 12 train cars from Indianapolis. The Dawn, a Chicago-based Klan-published newspaper, reported on this heavily. They were excited about the possibility of acquiring this university, um, citing the potential that when so many students at Valpo were already members of the KKK, it was just so convenient. They also reported the town itself was very welcoming towards their members during their hooded rally. The Don also, quote, explored the potential future of a Hoosier clan university. Every student, of course, would be a white Protestant and every professor a Klansman. While there's nothing super official of record to provide real evidence of exactly how this went down, here's what we do know according to Klan newspapers who produced all of this information. Quote, Secret meetings between unidentified Klan leaders and R.D. Raymond, chairman of the Clavern's Educational Committee, and Klansman Dr. E.H. Miller produced a favorable response to the idea of a national Klan university, then, nameless hooded friends of the institution met with university vice president and ex-president Milo Bowman in either late June or early July. They tentatively settled on a transfer price of $340,000 with the understanding that one-third would be paid immediately to alleviate the school's financial crisis and that the KKK would provide a million dollars reconstruction and endowment fund for the university. Other newspapers that were not published by the Klan seemed hesitant to report on this, at least at first, but you do start to see some mention of it in other regional and even national papers here and there. Um, and they just start to parrot the things that you see in the Klan papers. The message inquirer, inquirer, very bad at saying that word, out of Owensboro, they wrote, Quote, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan will take over Valparaiso University. 
if the trustees of the institution are able to present a sound financial proposition. High officials of the Klan in Indiana said yesterday the Klan is opposed to taking over the university if it is involved in a lawsuit. It goes on. Dr. H. M. Evans, president of Valparaiso, has confirmed statements that the university trustees have voted favorably on the sale of the institution to the Klan, but declines to divulge how far the negotiations have progressed. And then in August, the Paducah-based News Democrat reported, quote, Negotiations have been completed for the taking over of Valparaiso by the Ku Klux Klan organization. The university, which is one of the oldest educational institutions in the country, will be called the National University. The purchase price was announced as $350,000, which represents an amount about equal to the indebtedness of the institution. $500,000 will be spent immediately for improvement of the university buildings, and in addition, an endowment of another half million dollars will be established. The article concludes, quote, The institution will be run along the same lines as heretofore and will be open to all persons meeting the educational requirements, regardless of race, color, or religion, it was said. The Klan spokesman for this whole ordeal, the, the, the guy in charge here of writing everything that comes out about this, was Milton Elrod, who was the editor of the official newspaper of the Indiana Klan. This paper, the Fiery Cross, stupid, would regularly report that these negotiations were going so well. So on July 4th, during another rally, the paper reported that President Evans and two board members met with Grand Dragon Stevenson's men, and the Klan agreed to commit with a $30,000 earnest money deposit into an escrow account. Several Klansmen from around the region met with Valpo board members in Indianapolis a few weeks later, according to Milton Elrod. They apparently came to terms once and for all at that meeting, and the town of Valparaiso patiently awaited the influx of money into the school and thus into their community. The Klan indicated to the current heads of the school that they didn't intend to make that many changes, allegedly. They wanted to amp up Bible studies, courses in constitutional law, and their goal was to increase enrollment to 5,000. Reporters from around the region started to flock to Valparaiso to interview the locals and find out, you know, what the general public thought about this, and no one really seemed to be bothered by it. Quote, the well-established and apparently non-threatening local clavern had comfortably embraced many of the city's business and professional elite, and most of the citizenry evidently decided that clan you was better than no you. But the reporters couldn't seem to verify that the deal was actually happening or what the Klan really planned to do with the school from anyone other than this newspaper editor, Milton Elrod. In the meantime, though, the rumors were flying and Catholic students especially were leaving in droves at the suggestion of University Secretary Catherine Corboy, who warned prospective Catholic students that the university would not be the welcoming place it once was. Corboy wrote, 
the KKK in Indiana at present are very prominent and they are out to win. They claim that the old policies of the school will prevail, but since their attacks on the Jew, the Negro, the foreign-born, and the Catholics are so vicious, not many will attend. But they have so many of their own people, and they certainly need an education. <laughs> That's great. Um, even though he was no longer president, Brown Jr. received a telegram from an attorney in Atlanta that simply read, This order has already placed one school here in Atlanta in bankruptcy. It will kill your school, sure as hell. And it wasn't just judgment and warnings from Atlanta where that other Klan school had failed. By now, the entire country had heard the rumors and the gossip, and they were all denouncing this deal. Papers joked things like, the curriculum, with a K, will include lynching, tarring, and feathering. Another joked that it was a good thing the deal hadn't been finalized because a requirement of higher education would drastically lower the Klan's membership. And the truly wild thing about this whole story is that it all played out in the media so much more than in real life, which is something that, that happens pretty often now, but back then, kind of unusual. Now, behind the scenes, something else entirely was happening. So, in the early 1920s, Brown Jr. had resigned from whatever lower position he was still holding at the university. So, um, he really wasn't involved. He purchased Cook Laboratories, a Chicago manufacturer of surgical supplies, and he merged Cook with McGregor Surgical Equipment. And then using an overdue payment on the school's debt as an excuse to do what he was about to do, he terminated the university's lease on the campus. So instead of continuing to lease the campus to the school that sat on the campus, he signed a seven-year lease with his own company. Uh, he leased it to Cook Laboratories. And his plan was to turn part of the campus into a factory to mass produce the syringe his company had just patented. And he, he kind of came to the school and he was like, look guys, no hard feelings. I'm going to employ so many people with this factory and it's going to be great. And, you know, the school is not excited about this, but the Valparaiso Chamber of Commerce is, is interested in this proposition. <laughs> The Board of Trustees was not ready to give up. I mean, they had been working hard trying to figure out how to save this school, and um, they had just collected on some insurance money from the buildings that burned down. So they were able to pay their overdue payments with the Valparaiso Realty Company, and then they hired an attorney named Grant Crumpacker, and they filed a lawsuit against H.K. Brown, the Realty Company, and Cook Laboratories, which are all owned by the Brown family, and they were seeking restoration of their lease and also direct assumption of all the university's debts, specifically including the shares of stock. So then in response to that, H.K. Brown had his attorneys write up a letter asking the university to vacate the premises immediately to get off the campus. But he had no, he couldn't do this legally, um, 
no. So instead, he, he walked it back, and he was like, actually, you know what? Let's share the campus. We'll do half school, half medical equipment factory. And, of course, Cook Labs would need control of the medical and science buildings, but the students could even enroll in some type of collaborative work-study program. Uh, he lost completely. A judge approved the trustee's request to obtain the lease. They ended up dropping their suit against Brown and his companies. And over time, this fizzled out. And Brown backed down, and he said he respected President Evans. And if they really wanted to do a deal with the Klan to save the school, he would support them. Nothing happened after that. It was very quiet until August 1923 when the Valparaiso Daily Vedette reported that the Klan was on their way with a million dollars and a plan to rebuild the university. I mean, literally, on their way. Hundreds of people met in the streets that night to celebrate. People marched from the Klan headquarters at Monroe and Washington to the railroad to greet some of the trustee members who they believed had finalized this deal. The next day, the paper reported the escrow deposit had been made and the sale would formally occur on August 28th. But then the papers went silent again. August 28th came and went and nothing. And then finally, on September 6th, there was this small report in the paper that because of legal technicalities, the deal was off. Judge Robert Marsh, the lead attorney for the Indiana Klan, was open about the fact that even though they would have liked to purchase the university, they didn't have the money. In fact, legal technicalities had nothing to do with it. The trustees and the Klan had been warm to each other, they'd been cooperative and friendly, but it was always just more of a daydream for both parties than an actual possibility. The Klan simply didn't have the money. I ended up finding a pretty good article about this, an explanation of what really happened, and this was in the Lexington Leader in late September 1923. I'm going to read it in full. It's not that long, um, but I did print it out, and it's small and faded, so bear with me. It says, One of the most successful canards worked on the press and public for a long time was the reported purchase of Valparaiso University by the Ku Klux Klan. All the newspapers fell for it, apparently, as it was sufficiently spectacular to be exactly in line with Klan methods. It was originated by a newspaper man, James Elrod, editor of the Fiery Cross, who seems to have convinced himself that the purchase was really to be made. The university was in financial difficulties, and Elmer D. Brothers, president of the trustees, was ready to seek help where it was to be found. Now he's busy denying rumors of the sale, which have done the institution great injury, greatly reducing the enrollment. He says, So far as I know, the story of the purchase of the university by the Klan originated with James Elroy, editor of the Fiery Cross, a Klan house organ. organ. He came to me and told me that the Klan was ready to back the university with finances very much needed at that time and would pay all debts and lend it other support in a movement for better education. He did not say that the Klan would purchase the university outright, but merely that it would act as a financial sponsor for it. He suggested that I go to see Robert Marsh of the Educational Department of the Klan, then in Indianapolis. 
I went to see Mr. Marsh and was told that he knew nothing about it. I have never been able to find other authorization for Mr. Elrod's offer. The university has not been, nor will it be, purchased by the Klan. In justice to an institution which has been a great power for good in the educational field, the Herald feels that this correction should be made. While it was under the management of its originator, it did a wonderful work, enabling thousands to get an education who could not otherwise do so. It is to be hoped that it may be thoroughly reestablished. So this is just bonkers to me. And the funniest thing about this article is that they spell his name like three different ways, the, the Klan newspaper editor, and none of them are right. <laughs> um, but, it, but truly, it was just this one guy who said, oh, the Klan will give you a bunch of money. And then it just turned into this crazy thing um, that a bunch of other people just took off with. So that's a really interesting take on it. And it, that was a direct quote from the president of the board of trustees. So um, that's a pretty direct source. Now, I've mentioned the Grand Dragon very briefly. I haven't talked about him yet. Grand Dragon David Stevenson of the Indiana Klan was pretty upset with this newspaper editor, as you can imagine. So he kind of got demoted. Um, he, he reeled this guy in and he said, you have to go through Klan leaders before you publish anything from now on. But we really don't know if uh, Grand Dragon Stevenson had any involvement in this. Um, we are going to talk about him more in a follow-up episode, but I'll share a little bit about him now. David Stevenson was born in Texas. He was an elementary school dropout. He became a coal salesman in Indiana in 1921. I read on Wikipedia that he was a World War I veteran, but then I read in like four other places that he actually lied about serving in the military, so that's not great. He tried to run for local office twice. He lost twice, but he became good friends with Governor Edward Jackson, who did not go down in history as a celebrated or respected governor. Stevenson joined the Klan. He gave lots of hate speeches about Jews, Catholics, Blacks, basically all your minorities. He became the head of the Hoosier Klan by 1923. He owned a yacht and an airplane with three flaming Ks painted on the side of it. He was very good at recruiting. Um, the, the Klan in general was pretty good at recruiting. Around this time, about a third of white males in the state of Indiana were members of the Klan. Stevenson was appointed Grand Dragon in 1923, but the guy that appointed him actually tried to have him removed later the same year, and things got ugly. He refused to step down, so he then decided to break away and form his own faction of the Indiana Klan. Stevenson's reputation as a prohibitionist and defender of Protestant womanhood came to an abrupt halt in 1925 when he was put on trial for the rape and murder of Madge Oberholzer. That is what I'll be covering in the next episode, so I don't really want to get into it today, but for now, suffice it to say, the details are gruesome, and Stevenson was convicted and sentenced to life in prison, but that is not the end of his story. But enough about him. Um, all I, the only reason I brought him up is because he was Grand Dragon at the time that this was happening, 
and we, we don't have any documentation of how involved he was, but everyone assumes not very involved because at the end of the day, this was not a serious conversation. It just wasn't going to happen. And so when he was as high up as he was, I can't imagine he was spending that much time on something unrealistic. Um, one other reason that this matters is because some financial information came out during his trial about the Indiana clan. So in March of 23, 1923, they had $50,000 in their bank account. That would have been enough for like the earnest money deposit and a couple of nice steak dinners at St. Elmo's. They had raised so much more than that, um, more than $80 million nationally that, that year, uh, $4.5 million in Indiana. But no one seemed to know where all that money had gone with just 50000 left in the bank. I mean, we know part of it went to Stevenson's 100-foot twin-screw mahogany antique yacht, which I really hope got repossessed by the state when he went to prison. And when all of this was said and done, President Evans was left with two things. One, a failing university. And two, a national reputation for almost having sold out and cooperated with the KKK. Not great. I found an article from the Courier-Journal published in February of the following year, and it is quite forgiving. The title is No Place for KKKs. Valparaiso University in northern Indiana is taking steps through a committee of prominent men in various states, former students at the university, to correct misinformation which was widely published concerning efforts of the Ku Klux Klan to gain control of the institution. The report, it is stated, appears to have served one good purpose, for it brought to the support of their alma mater many loyal alumni who are doing all in their power to combat the consequences of the exaggerated story that the Knights of the Nightshirt were about to take over the school. Such Kentuckians as Judge Flem D. Sampson, Chief Justice of the Court of Appeals, his brother Louis D. Sampson of New York, and Sawyer A. Smith, United States District Attorney for the Eastern District, are on the committee fighting the results of the Ku Klux propaganda. Whatever truth there may have been in the reports of the, the negotiations of the Klan for the university, it is certain that the order has nothing to do with this institution now. An indication of this is the resolution recently adopted by the university trustees embodying a code of principles which proclaims opposition to any individual, group, lodge, church, or society which intentionally endeavors to separate our people into class-conscious groups setting one against the other in promotion of class hatred. This should be sufficient warning that the KKK has no place in Valparaiso. In October of 1923, President Evans offered 15 acres on campus to Cook Labs to build a factory in exchange for the Brown family's cancellation of the school's debts to the family, which is what Brown Jr. wanted in the first place was to build that factory, but then he turned around and said no. So clearly, um, his father's legacy really wasn't a priority. 
Uh, but then the town kind of rallied around the school, and that year they raised $8,000 to keep it afloat for the rest of the semester. Um, have I mentioned that the school still wasn't state accredited at this point? And they're really running out of options. So they tried to turn Valpo into a state school, and a bill to make it a state teacher's college actually cleared the legislature in early 1925. But then the governor, whose career ended in scandal and disgrace, friend of the Klan, Ed Jackson, pocket vetoed the measure. So that didn't happen either. Later that year, 1925, Valparaiso was rescued by Lutheran churchmen. A group of them suggested that the Central District of the Missouri Synod develop the school as a Lutheran university. Reverend John C. Bauer, a Fort Wayne resident, fundraiser, and anti-Klansman, was enlisted to help make the transition. The Valparaiso Chamber of Commerce breathed a sigh of relief. Eventually, the chamber convinced H.K. Brown to forgive the school's remaining debts. The university was deeded to the Lutherans for $176,000. A loan from a Fort Wayne insurance company got the deal done. The sale was announced in August of 1925, and again, the town celebrated the same way they did when they thought the Klan was coming into town to buy the school, but this time was different. The purchase was real, the buyers were smart, and the school was saved. The next several years were described as years of quiet progress. Five years later, half the student population was Lutheran. Many departments were fully accredited. The schools of engineering, law, and pharmacy were held in high regard. The Great Depression brought a new and unique set of challenges, but the school persevered. Today, Valparaiso offers 70 majors and five undergraduate colleges, has graduate studies offering more than 20 programs, 50-plus study abroad programs, and an alumni network over 60,000, Division I sports teams, 10 fraternities, and 7 sororities. Last year, the student body was made up of 2,355 undergrad and 609 graduate students. It's still a very small school. It has 206 full-time faculty, an average class size of 20, a 3.71 average GPA, and the undergraduate tuition for the 2022-23 school year was just under $45,000. Uh, for comparison, IU's out-of-state tuition this year was $38,000. So Valpo is small and it is expensive. If you look up the city today, the website will tell you they are a progressive, growing city. They've established various groups and associations to address diversity and discrimination. But simply adding the word racism to a search of Valparaiso paints a bit different picture. And if you're interested in learning more, that's where I would start. Uh, you'll get plenty of news articles. According to a group that tracks bias-motivated incidents in northwestern Indiana, from 2000 to 2004, there were at least five incidents of Klan activity reported. Quote, KKK activity primarily occurred in southern Lake County near Cedar Lake and Porter County. In one incident of KKK activity in Cedar Lake, a black woman found three KKK flyers, 
The woman also reported that people shouted racial slurs at her and her family when they moved into the area. In another KKK incident that occurred in Crown Point, an entire neighborhood received KKK flyers hidden in their newspapers. I realize that was kind of an abrupt way to end the episode, but that's the end of the story. I brought us up to modern day, and it's a nice reminder that even though we have come a long way, there's always progress to be made. Um, Like I said, I do have an episode coming up soon about the Grand Dragon um, and the woman he murdered, so stay tuned for that. That should be coming up pretty soon. I put together some very interesting and entertaining articles for the Century Ago in Kentucky segment for September, so that's coming soon as well. And then I already have some great stuff lined up for October, like for around Halloween, so I'm looking forward to sharing all of that with you. And in the meantime, if you have a topic suggestion, send it to kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Be sure to connect with me on social media and subscribe if you're not subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And then be sure to leave a review wherever you're listening. I really appreciate that. All right. Thank you for listening. Until next time.